0: Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. The last couple of weeks we've been kind of diving into some specific sins that uh, beset us that, that are so, easily to get, so easy to get tangled up in. We've discussed things like like judgment, haven't we? Stuff like the the general sense of of, of judgment. Yeah. Chris, the amazing sound guy, is getting ready to ring me out in case anybody is confused. I saw him running like a track star to the to the soundboard. But yeah, judgment—the general sense in which we walk around—and and, and we are just we're skewed by this negativity. It just it, it brings division and relationships, and and honestly, it sets us up to be better than everybody around us, right? It sets us up to to exalt ourselves as that of someone who's better, which is exactly contrary to Scripture, isn't it? Consider others as better than yourself is actually the scriptural command. Yet, through this judgmental attitude that's so easy to slip into, so often we find ourselves doing quite the opposite. Then when we talked about how judgment can get rooted into our hearts as well. So it's not just the general sense of of being judgmental, you know, but it's the deeper sense in which it actually gets rooted into our heart and then it becomes the lenses through which we see life. Lenses that are that are tainted. And I I use various examples of my own life. I know you all like how I throw myself under the bus, you know. I guess it's probably better that that you see the real deal than than for me to try to put on some sort of a show, right? Yeah. We talked about law enforcement office. And and how my interactions with law enforcement officers for years, or really anybody in a a uniform that had some authority they were exerting over me, you know, that that my interactions with them for years had been negative, and that this is the problem. This is the problem because we can look back and go, see, I'm justified in the judgments that I have because my history has always been negative, and we can be deceived. And they say the worst part about being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. You know, and when you come awake to truth, the truth that you're carrying judgments, a deep rooted judgment in your heart that's changing the lenses through which you're seeing life, you realize the reason that you've had negative interactions all those years was not because they were somehow evil, but because you we're bringing judgments into the equation that we're creating that recipe in your life. And talked about the freedom that comes when we recognize that, we repent of it, we walk in a new way in the empowerment that Christ affords us. We've talked a little bit about about gossip as well, and and, and largely these things are are surrounding the the, the greater context of conflict, which we've talked about God's protocol as expressed in Matthew 18 for how we deal with conflict. You know, and, and, and out of the place of, of conflict, often that's where judgments come from, isn't it? And, and that's where uh, things like gossip stir up out of. It's, it's out of conflict and usually conflict with other human beings. You know, there's nothing like another human being to show you who you really are on the inside. You know, when you squeeze a grape, what comes out of the inside is a grape, right? Grape juice. You don't get orange juice. Prune juice. That'd be worse. See, we have an opportunity, we get squeezed, the Bible actually, there's a certain Greek word that uh, references trials, it's it's the word that actually means a putting to proof. It means we have so many opportunities as human beings, uh, circumstances that would squeeze us to prove what we really believe. Do you really believe God's a healer? Do, Do you really believe that God is for you, that he's not against you? Do you really believe that you're the head and not the tail? Do you really believe that he's a provider? So his circumstances usually squeeze us in such a way that we have an opportunity to see what really is on the inside of us. So we've talked about gossip and judgments and the protocol of God. and, And all of these things that we've been going after, really, we've been going after with the aim to reset our culture to reset our culture. Not that we're seeing a, a, a ton of things, but we're seeing some things. You know, but we really want to speak into the culture that is harvest and, and reset it to the plumb line of God. The plumb line that says, no, 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 this is what we expect here. This is what the kingdom of God expects of us. This is how we're supposed to operate. And and today's message is no different. It's still completely in the vein of of a reset. How many of you know, I believe it was 2020 that the prophets started declaring that the church of God, the body of Christ was under a reset. Uh, I believe we're still in that reset. I believe God is still continuing to, to, to tweak things and sift out stuff that he doesn't want, and, and he's continuing to speak, but that's not just corporate, it's individual. And he's looking at us at individuals, and he's hitting the reset button. That's part of this series, again, what we are initiating today. Is, is no different, but instead of picking on individual sins like judgment or, or, or gossip, we're going to take a bit of a step back from that, and we're going to broaden the context to the general sense of which this series is, the general sense of sin and our identity. Sin and our identity, and we, we are aiming over the next couple of weeks to answer the question, am I just simply a sinner saved by grace, or am I a saint? Am I a sinner or am I a saint? That's the question that we aim to answer over the next two or three weeks together. Now, I told you recently I, I watched a movie. It was uh, the Mr. Rogers as played by Tom Hanks. I encourage you to, to watch that. I think it was, it was a great film. You know, but, but I love how God can use everything. Did you know God can use a secular movie to speak to you? Not R-rated movies, but just joking. <laughs> Although I don't watch R-rated movies. Now you know. So it's a PG thirteen movie, just to be clear. Mister Rogers about his life, and and I, I found I found it challenging. I, you know, I'm looking at the way that this guy responded to people, and the way that he would keep his emotions in check, and, and the way that he was slow to speak, like slow to anger, quick to listen. I find I found it. I thought, yes, Lord, do this in me, make me like Mister Rogers. <laughs> and it, and in this movie, <laughs> in this movie, somebody had asked his wife. You know, they had made some some allusion to to Fred Rogers being a saint. They were like, "Oh my gosh, this guy's a, this guy's a living saint. This he's, he's the he's the real deal." She responded in that movie to them and said, "No, he's 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 not a saint. We don't we don't like to use that terminology. We don't like to use that kind of language, because when we use that kind of language, when we put that kind of label on him and the lifestyle that he portrays, it makes everybody believe that it's unattainable." So we don't really want to call him a a saint. Have you ever looked up the definition of of saint and what it is? (laughs) Let me read the definition. This is just from your regular old Merriam-Webster dictionary. One officially recognized as preeminent in holiness. (laughs) It's interesting. We're having this this question. Are Are we sinners... Or are we saints? And you read a definition like that, and we weigh it against our own lives, and man, I think so many of us, we we walk away and we go, well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Yeah, I am certainly by no stretch the preeminent expression of holiness on, uh, on the earth. In fact, I could probably point to two or three things just last week that kind of knock that off track a little bit you know like and, and when I when I consider that definition I don't really look around forgive me for saying so and see a lot of people who meet the definition is, is that is that safe if it's not just wave at me we'll have a talk <laughs> you know okay you me later you know, I just don't. I don't and I don't, I don't know too many people who would be like, oh, yep, I am preeminent in holiness. That absolutely defines me. And I think I come to this conclusion that I agree with Mrs. Rogers. Sainthood's not something I can attain in my own strength. <laughs> it's not something that I can attain in my own strength. See, there's, there's actually nothing I can do to get myself that clean. There's nothing I can do to, to, to walk in the standard of the preeminence of holiness. Like, I, I just, like I can't be good enough. I'm still going to fall short of that. In fact, the Bible says it like this. This is the modern King James version. I usually use NASB, but modern King James kind of nails it down in a way that, that uh, I think describes it more clearly. And it says this We are all. The, we are all as the unclean thing. Now, in the Old Testament, this is a reference to being defiled spiritually or, or uh, spiritually unclean, spiritually polluted, if you can get just a picture of that. It says, and our righteousnesses, so my attempts to be right before God, my attempt to have good behavior that's pleasing to Him, to, to walk in the way that He prescribes, my righteousnesses, are as filthy as a filthy menstruation cloth. Some translations say filthy rag, but this is actually what it means in the Greek, or as it were the Hebrew. Filthy menstruation cloth. And we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, when you see the word iniquities, it's talking about sin, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. The truth is, this is where we all start, right here. When we're born into this world, we're born into the reality of this scripture and the picture that it paints for us. In fact, in Romans, Romans tells us that we are all shut up under sin. This is where we all start. This is who we are in the beginning. The question that I want to ask in this series, again, over the next couple of weeks is, is that where we are to stay? Is that where we are to stay? I want to propose to you that religion suggests that it is. That's what we're going to flesh out. The book of Romans, I, I believe to be the I said first, preeminent, because that's just such a cool word, right? The preeminent voice. The top voice on this subject, the, the Apostle Paul actually has that aim, answering the very question that we're now beginning to unpack. You know, are we saints or are we sinners? Which, which is it? Who are we going to be? And, and and chapter upon chapter, and by the way, I would submit to you at least through the first eight or nine chapters, read it that way. Read it all the way through once to get a sense of, of what the apostle Paul is actually attempting to communicate, or more clearly, what the Holy Spirit is wanting to communicate to you. Because chapter upon chapter, line upon line, he's building a case and an argument and answering the question: Are we saints or are we sinners? You know, he starts out in the beginning, aiming his argument at the Jews and and then the Gentiles, suggesting, hey, Jews, you're not perfect. Don't think that you're perfect. Don't think that you're special, that you're somehow exempt. You are a bunch of filthy sinners. Your righteousness is a filthy rags. Then he goes after the Gentiles. Your righteousness is of filthy rags. And then he gets to chapter three, and chapter three kind of brings it all to a point. And that's where I would like to start with this journey this morning. Now, the book of Romans, I, I don't know how many in here have, have, have read it through, but it can be a little bit challenging. In fact, one of my own children read it recently. They read it through, Which, by the way, my children are reading the Bible. Are you? If my kids can do it. Then, then no one has an excuse, right? <laughs> so they're reading, through, they're reading through Romans and they were like, I don't understand a word this dude has to say. Like, <laughs> how many have felt like that when you read Romans? You know, you're just like, Okay, wait a second. Like, let me get my dictionary out because I just, I, like, these are some highfalutin words, some words that are used like one time. Like, like, I mean, this is like scholarly level stuff that's kind of hard sometimes to get, a, to get your brain around just when you, when you read through it, you know especially if you haven't even exposed to some of that terminology. So, so forgive me in advance, but my approach to this as we break this down today and perhaps even as we go in the next couple of weeks into the future it, is to actually go and to hit all of those words and break down the words so that we have complete understanding of what the Apostle Paul is actually attempting to get at. So we're going to be a lot more teacherly than preacherly. I'd ask you if that's all right, but that's what I'm going to do, whether you endorse my behavior or not. So, good, I got at least one, so we're doing all right. We're going to start in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And bear with me again as we take this really, really slow. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. I want to submit to you, as we continue to deal with some of these terms, I want to give you some good memory tools. And and what I mean by that is, like when you look at a word like righteousness, I, I think many of us don't truly understand, even though we're more familiar with that, don't truly understand what the word actually means in its original text and in its original intent. And the word righteousness, if you can use this as a memory tool, can be described, when you think of it, as the right ways of God. We get it mixed up with holiness and just different other things that are out there that kind of describe an aspect of it. But I want you to think of it like this. It's the right ways of God. So when you see this unfolding in Scripture, the right ways of God. Now, the law, it's talking about the law, the law of the Old Testament. I I want to submit to you that the law of the Old Testament largely was uh, the enumerated ways of God. In Deuteronomy, we find under the law, we have this, on the one hand, it's like, if you do all of these things, you're going to be blessed. Like, do these things. Like, do this. Like, this is is God's best for you. If you do these things, you're going to stay under his covering of favor. You know, you're going to see the blessing of God unfold in your life. But if you do these things, you're taking yourself outside of his covering, and sin leads to death. Death and destruction and pain and misery. That's what's going to be found over here. So, over here, the blessing of God. This is what you do, this is what you don't do, right? It's largely talking about the right ways of God. Now, I want to submit to you that anytime we see God placing a parameter on our life, He's not trying to choke out fun, <laughs> He's not trying to keep you from something. Can I just throw that out there really quick? Like, If God says do this and don't do this, it's for your life. It's for your good. It's for the abundance that Jesus paid for. It's not to try to take some, like, don't get drunk on wine, but get drunk in the Holy Spirit, it says. right? He's not trying to tell you, hey, there's a lot of fun with drinking alcohol and you don't get to have it. Welcome to Christianity. No, he's saying there's death and destruction. At the end of that road, I'm trying to save you from tears and pain. Rather, engage with God and be intoxicated by his presence. This is the way, walk in it, he's saying. Right? He's never placing a parameter in your life to try to choke out fun or to try to keep you from something. This is the lesson that we learn all the way back in the book of Genesis from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the devil comes to Adam and Eve, and what does he say? Oh, God, God, just, he's trying to pull something over on you. He doesn't want you to have the same knowledge that he has. He's holding back on you. Wait, what? He's holding back? He's holding back on me? God's trying to keep something from me? No, he was trying to keep you safe and trying to keep you in the abundance of life, and we all saw how that story went. That's what we're talking about today. We are the fruit of that born with righteousness like filthy rags. Thank you, Adam and Eve. Is this making sense so far? God's not placing a parameter on us to choke out life. He's placing a parameter to release us into life. So the law, I believe, was the, the, was the enumeration of that, the right ways of God plainly put on paper to help put us in check so that we would find the blessing of God rather than the curses of God. Now this says that, that outside of the law, the righteousness of God was being raised up. So what, what is it? But it was testified in the law and the prophets. So what is it talking about? It's suggesting that this righteousness that's being raised up now apart from the law was something that the law and the prophets both talked about. So as they were looking towards the future, they were proclaiming what is now getting ready to be described in the very next verse. Okay? They're testifying of this righteousness, this the right ways of God that we don't find necessarily enumerated in the book of Deuteronomy. Are we clear so far? And this is what it says, verse 22. It says This is what was testified in the Law and the Prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all of those who believe, for there is no distinction. What is it saying? It's saying that Jesus Christ is the right way of God. Jesus Christ is the right way. He's talking, what is this righteousness? The righteousness is the right way of God. It's something now that is being introduced or raising up apart from the law, but the law pointed to it. What did it point to? It pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the right way of God, and he's apprehended by faith. That's what it says here. What does that mean? That means you have to believe. That means you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world that's for you. That he was raised again on the third day. That he was raised to to newness of life. That he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, on on the regular. That taking the sins of the world upon himself, he reconciled you to Father God. And now everything is forever changed. That's what it's talking about. This is the right way of God, apart from the law, that is now being demonstrated and raised up. We apprehend it by faith. Now, here's where Romans starts to get super scholarly. So put on your (laughs) seatbelts. Get out your pens and pencils. Are we all right? Okay, good. I'm going to read this all the way through, then we'll start breaking down some terms. It says, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, "...being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus." Verse 25. "...whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at this present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ." What? What did he just say? Let's go back to verse 23. Let's break it down. Let's break it down. No? Okay. All right. Nothing. Can somebody remove Todd from the front row? He's not helping me today at all. It's not helping me at all. The first term we come to is the the glory of God. Well, actually, let me rewind. Uh, The first term we really come to is sin. You know, that first verse, it says, all have fallen short here. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is to miss the mark of God's perfection. Now, is there anybody, anybody who feels confident that they have nailed it every time? Now, see, we were born in sin. Our righteousness is with filthy rags. And then we've embraced it as our own and continue to walk it out, missing the mark on the continual basis. Everyone has missed the mark and fallen short. Everybody has missed the mark of God's perfection. Then it says, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God can be this ethereal type of concept, right? And I remember one time on the mission field, I was actually taking a class for church planning. Funny, those things happen on the mission field, did you know that? (laughs) And the instructor had said, what is the glory of God? Can you describe it? And boy, every single person in the room had something different. And you know, the Bible actually has uh, uh, several different, uh, not illustrations, uh, definitions, like from the, from the, the, like the light of it, the radiant light of God and all these things. So I think the best definition that we find is out of God's own mouth as he's talking to Moses all the way back in the Old Testament. Now, Moses, after having seen significant works of God, imagine this guy. He's carrying around the staff. You know, he's talking to Moses. He sees a staff turn into a snake. He sees the plagues get released by God and then relented by God. He sees, you know, like rivers turned into blood. He sees the, the, whatever it is, I was going to say the Dead Sea, the Red Sea. Red Sea, right? Did I have that right? Dead Sea, Red Sea? Red Sea. Red Sea. Sometimes the head's dead, and that's the problem with the mouth. You know, he, had, he thrusts his staff into the sea and sees it. the, the, the water is part. He's, he's whacking a rock in the middle of an otherwise dry desert and seeing water come forth, right? Like he's, he, he, this is, These are some significant things that this man has seen, and we see him approach God and he says, "I just, I want to see your glory, God. How many of you know there's always more? <laughs> Can we ever exhaust who God is? There's always more. You know, he doesn't look at Moses. He doesn't look at Moses and say, bro, listen, you need to share some of this. Uh, you have seen enough, man. Like you have the whole Red Sea situation, the manna, the snakes and the, you know what I mean? Like, like you've, you've seen more than like most human beings have ever seen. I think we're starting to get into spiritual gluttony. <laughs> like spread some love there, partner, you know? That's, that's not, that's not what he says. I mean, God effectively responds and says, yeah, I'd love to show you How many of you know there's always more with God? We've never arrived. There's always more. We get to spend an eternity excavating the truths of how good he really is. We can never get to the end of it. But in response to this question, show me your glory, God. God responds to him and says, I'm going to allow all of my goodness to pass before you. So what's, what's God saying? He's saying, yes, I'll show you my glory, and it's described as this. I will allow all of my goodness to pass before you, and such he does, right? So I think we could rightly interpret the glory of God as the goodness of God. And I think the glory of God on display in the spirit realm, and this is me just, I'm just conjecturing a little bit. I don't necessarily have a chapter and verse for this, but I think the glory on display on God in the spirit realm is why he's so luminous. It's why you can't look upon Him. The angels, when they come, you can't look upon them. Why? Because the goodness of God is so radiant and unblemished in the spirit realm that it's blinding. God defines His glory as His goodness. His goodness will pass before me. I'll allow my goodness to pass before me. So when we're looking at this scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is it possible what he's saying is that that not only have we missed the mark of his perfection, but we've also fallen short of his goodness fully on display in our life? Let's look at the next verse, verse 24. We've all fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace. What is this word justified? We can see it there on, on the board. I give you some of the... Some of the Greek background. Justified to to render just or innocent, to to render free, to make free or to, to justify or to make righteous. Now, one of the ways that you can remember the word justified when you see it written in Scripture is to remember it like this It makes you, He makes you just as if you've never sinned. Legally, the word is to be acquitted. You know that we have an acquittal. That would be the legal term for it. what, What does that mean? That that means when I stood before the judge, he smashed his gavel on his desk and he declared that I am innocent. He declared that you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, are innocent. That's what it means to be justified. You are found not guilty. Being justified as a gift by his grace. Now listen to this. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to chase after it. It's a gift that you receive from God. He's talking about, like, you were acquitted. You were found, you were found not guilty. Boom! It was a gift. He gave it to me. He was the one who accomplished it. Now that whole sainthood thing is unattainable. It's a gift of God. It says, and being justified as a gift of his grace. What's it talking about when it relates to grace? The Thayers. Thayers is a Greek lexicon. By the way, any of these resources that I use, you can find on a free software called e-sword. I highly recommend it. I've used it for years and years and years. It's wonderful. It gives you access to all of the old historic commentaries and dictionaries and Anything you need to know to understand the highly scholarly book of Romans. Talking about grace. We are justified as a gift by his grace. Thayer says, uh, goodwill, loving kindness, or favor. But it describes it then, it flushes it out like this. Of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, Strengthens them and increases them in their faith, knowledge, and affection, and kindles them to, to the exercise of Christian virtues. Here's the problem most of Christendom has mistranslated the word grace. And we hear the word grace and we think, oh, thank you for your grace, I've sinned and you're covering my sin. That's not the definition that we find. The definition that we find is he's empowering me and you. He's not covering it. He's empowering me not to do it in the first place. That's grace. The apostle Paul makes this super clear. He says it was by grace, it was by the grace of God on his life that he became an apostle. And he goes on further to say it's by the grace of God released to me that I was empowered to run harder than all of my peers What's he talking about? He's talking about this, and this is how I would define grace. An empowerment that enables me or empowers me to do what I could not do on my own. And as we read it in the context of this, it's not the empowerment necessarily to be something, or or to do something rather. He's not empowering me to do something as I read it in this context. He's empowering me to be or to become something. See, there's a transaction being described here that I can't do on my own. By, like, there is no power in myself that I can call on to do what is being described. He's empowering me by his grace, a gift of grace, to do what I otherwise couldn't do, to become what I otherwise couldn't become. And he goes on, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Thayer describes the word redemption as releasing the affected by payment of ransom. This is a redemption, a deliverance, liberation procured by a payment of ransom. How many of you know you previously were held captive by the enemy of your life and your faith? You were previously a slave to sin, held captive completely in its grip, and there was nothing you could do because your righteousness, that which you were born with, was of filthy rags. You were a slave. You were held captive by this thing. But what is it telling us right here? The redemption of God means that Jesus Christ himself stepped into my situation where, uh, and addressed my captivity. He addressed my captor and he made payment for my soul to free me from the dungeon that I was in. And that payment was with his own blood, with his own life. Jesus ransomed he, he's, he paid this ransom for my soul with his blood, with his own life. That's a big deal. And lastly, we have this word in verse 25, and God who God displayed Jesus, he displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This is an atoning victim or an act of pleasing God. And what it specifically means is this. God, who is just, executed completely His justice over sin. That's what it means. He executed His justice against sin in the earth. Now the penalty for our sin is death. Death. If God executes his penalty against us, we're just separated from him for eternity. Justice served. You died, and now you're separated from an eternity. Obviously, God wishes that none should perish. That's what the word tells us. But for him not to execute justice over sin means that he's not just. Insert Jesus. And Jesus stands in. And takes my place so that God can execute justice against sin and release me from that penalty. And and that's what it says as we continue. And I'll talk about that here again in just a second as we flesh it out. Let's take it from the top, starting again in verse 23. For all of sin, we've all missed the mark of God's perfection. We've all fallen short of the, the goodness of God on display in our lives. Being justified, being just as if we had never sinned, being acquitted of our sin, being found and rendered ungu- not unguilty, not guilty, being rendered innocent before the judge who is Father God as a gift I didn't have to earn it by his empowering grace through the ransom that Jesus Christ paid with his own life. Verse 25 who God displayed publicly as a propitiation, the one who would step in to allow the justice of God to be executed against sin so that I could be released and these other things could fully unfold, so that I could be fully innocent. He did this through his own blood. We apprehend it by faith, and this was to demonstrate his right ways because in his forbearance, that's the word for tolerance, because tol—because in the tolerance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his right ways at this present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, perfect justice was released when Jesus stood in your place taking your lashes for you taking your punishment of sin upon himself. Perfect justice was executed such that God devised such a perfect plan that he could both be just and the justifier. That's what it's saying there. He could both be just in his execution against sin because the penalty of sin was death, but he can also in the same breath because he's so masterfully crafty. In the same breath, he releases you from your penalty and declares once and for all that you're innocent so that he's not only just, but he's also the justifier of those who place their faith in him. You have been acquitted. We've all fallen short. We've all fallen short of God's perfection. And every time I magnify the definition of sin, I feel like Isaiah, oh, woe is me, man of unclean lips. To, to miss the mark of God's perfection is me on the regular. It's you on the regular. But Jesus, Jesus stepped in and made me just as if I had never sinned. So that when Father God blasted his gavel and court. He was able to render me fully and completely innocent of the crime of which I was accused. The question on the table for us is, then did that change anything? Does that change anything? Or am I the same today as I was before the cross? If I was accused of being a sinner, the judge says, no, you're not. Be free. Does that change anything? This is what I want to leave you with. You can write down these questions if you like. I want you to be praying about this this week. Does the fact that I was acquitted of the crime that, was, that I was accused of, that being sin or a sinner, does the fact that I was rendered innocent, does it change anything? Does it somehow make me different? Does it, does it, does it make my life different in some way? Uh, do I have different freedoms? Do I have different responsibilities? Has it changed in any way? If I was accused of being a sinner, this is point number two, and yet I was acquitted of being does that somehow affect my identity? Think about it. If somebody accused me of murder and the, the, the judge pounds his gavel and says, you're not a murderer, am I still a murderer? Like, Oh, I'm still just a filthy murderer. The judge said something about that. Why don't you believe him? Does the fact that I was acquitted change my identity? This is the question that we're wrestling with. Am I a sinner or am I a saint? It's not about what you think of yourself. It's about what he says of you. Am I a sinner or am I a saint? Did something change when I said yes to Jesus Christ and his finished work on that cross? Let me give you just a little hint of where we're going. It was for freedom that he set you free. Freedom from what? That's the question we're going to be answering in the next few weeks. Freedom from what? Indeed, as you're praying about it this week, though, hold that intention. Did something change when you got saved? Or are you just the same as you were before? just trying to do better Jesus we submit our hearts and our lives into your hands we submit our brains into your hands we ask that you would invade and that you would pull scales off of our eyes we to the best of our ability come open before you to hear what you have to say through your word to correct doctrine perhaps that we've believed erroneously erroneously to correct the way that we've read your word, to correct lies, that's what I'm saying, that we've believed about your character, about what you accomplished on the cross, about what my responsibilities are, what level of empowerment I get to walk in now this side of the cross. We're asking, would you take the scales off of our eyes, all of the bad preaching or weird stuff that that somehow impacted us? We invite you, Holy Spirit, dissolve it off of us We present ourselves as babes, and we're asking that you would rewrite our code. Rewrite the way that we think over this subject, that we could see it the way that you see it, and that we could be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us, or would like more information about our church, or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.